on the screen I have an artist depiction of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, and he lived in the third century into the fourth century. And he is a remarkable individual. According to one scholar, he states this bold uh, statement about the impact of Augustine. He says, after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. Augustine is responsible for framing the theological structure of not only Catholicism, but also Protestantism to this day. And the impact of Augustinian theology can be a topic of reflection for a lifetime. Now, when Augustine was doing theology in the very beginning, he imported from Greek philosophy an understanding of human nature that is prevalent today in, I would say, 99% of Christian theology and beliefs. And it was this concept of the soul and the body-soul dichotomy. He adopted this from Plato, and Plato came up with this idea of Greek ontology, of this dichotomy between the body and the soul. In other words, you have this exterior husk, and then you have the soul that is within. And this soul is timeless in a philosophical sense, not having a past, present, or future continuum. And Augustine, rather than going to the Bible to come to an understanding of human nature, he said, you know what? Plato has described ontology and epistemology and metaphysics. Why not adopt from Plato. And so he said, why do all the hard work and go to the Bible to come up with an understanding of human nature? And so he imported this from Greek philosophy. And as one of my professors says in his groundbreaking dissertation, A Criticism of Theological Reason, he indicated that all of modern philosophy today is a series of footnotes to Plato. And he contends in his dissertation that theology from the very beginning adopted not a biblical ontology, but rather a philosophical ontology built on Platonic metaphysics. So here we have it, the body-soul dichotomy. Now you may be wondering, Pastor David, like, why are we talking about this? Uh, this doesn't have huge implications. Well, let me give you one implication that this has, and it has to do with the idea of what happens after you die. Let's see how a belief of human nature impacts this, okay? So the majority of Protestants today, I would say classical or conservative Protestants and Catholics, believe in the existence of a soul, not because of biblical understanding, but because of platonic understanding of human nature. So what happens when you die, according to our Protestant Catholic friends? Your soul goes to heaven. And so after you go to heaven, you're looking down here on earth, and I've been to funerals, and bless their hearts, okay? They don't know that they're coming from a Greek philosophy, a Greek ontology, and they say, our dear sister is looking down on us right now. Have you been to a funeral like that? Okay, And this is based on this concept of the immortal soul that goes to heaven. So you can see how this understanding of human nature impacts the practice of how we think and how we act. 
and how we relate to those that are deceased. I remember having a Bible study with an individual with a Catholic background, and he told me that his grandmother had died, and it affected his existence day to day because he would talk to his grandmother, okay, believing that her soul was in heaven looking down. So this had very practical implications to -to day-to-day life. Now, we're in our series entitled The Science of Overcoming Sin. Let's look at sin based on this type of understanding of human nature. When you look at Lutheran theology and Protestant theology, they had a very pessimistic understanding of human nature and the notion and the idea of total depravity. In other words, human nature was totally depraved. Even the soul was depraved. So sin, by its very definition, is not a thought or an action or something that you decide. Sin was ontological, meaning that it had to do with your very soul. So sin is not something that you do or that you act on. Sin is something that you are. Sin is a state of being. Now this has huge implications as to whether you can ever have victory over sin. If sin is something that you are, Can you have victory over it ultimately? No. You know, I'm I'm a Korean. I can't do anything about that. I praise the Lord I'm a Korean. You know, I don't I don't regret that. But hey, we just end up. I'm Korean. You know? It's who I am genetically. And so with this idea of sin being not only affecting the body, but also affecting the soul, it is something that you are. And so the idea of victory, of overcoming, is foreign from a theological sense to the Protestant mind and the Catholic mind. So much so that in the Catholic systematic theology, Jesus could not come with the same nature that we did. Why? Because if he did, he would be a sinner by birth. And so they had to come up with this idea of the immaculate conception and so forth. And so this thing gets systematized. All right? So when we talk about sin and overcoming sin, we need to go to the Bible to understand human nature first rather than Greek philosophy because from the very beginning, a mistake of Augustine has been incorporated into Christian theology, and here we are. And the revolution of Adventism was, look, let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about human nature. Now, what does the Bible have to say? In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the King James Version, it says that God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You've read that before. So the biblical understanding of the soul is not a Greek understanding like we see here on the screen. The biblical understanding of a soul is, look at the person next to you. That's a soul. The the whole entity of the human being is the soul. Look, you don't open the hood of a car and say, where's the car? Right? The car is the whole thing. And so you don't say, where's the soul? The soul is the whole thing. And so the Bible presents a historical view of human nature, meaning a past, present, future flow of history, and sin also follows the past, present, and future implications of sin. For instance, 
when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, this had implications, historical implications, for where we are today. Meaning, when they ate of that fruit, whatever it was, all of the human race would be affected. Are there physical implications and consequences of that act on us? Absolutely. You know, I come up here and ch- tongue in cheek and I say, look, I'm five foot six. That's a result of sin. It is. Okay? Um, I'm, I'm thankful for whatever height I am, but look, we were never meant to be this short. This is, this is not, this is the result of sin. Okay? Wrinkles is a result of sin. Okay? Uh, you know, our, 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 our physical nature, the, the, the breaking down of our physical nature was impacted by the historical act of Adam and Eve. We are here genetically affected by the nature of sin. Okay? Also, our intelligence was impacted. All right? People say that if you have an IQ of 130 or 140 that you're bright. Well, that was not Adam and Eve's IQ in the very beginning. Okay? We would be in remedial classes in Eden. All right? So our mental capability was affected. Do you think our psychological uh, mental health was impacted by sin? Absolutely. Our emotional health, every dynamic of it. Our spiritual nature was impacted by sin. We are born into this world, okay, with the cultivated and inherited tendencies to sin. We cultivate some of our own, and I inherited some from my father and my grandfather going back to the third and fourth generation according to Scripture. And we, you know, to our poor kids, we pass them on as well. And so there are these implications and these results of sin that we pass on. But the beauty of what God does, and even how he defines sin, sin is not something that you are in an ontological Greek sense. Sin ultimately comes down, all right, to our decision and our choice, which has an impact, okay, on our, gener- on, on our posterity and the people around us. Now, Jesus expands sin from the Pharisaical model of just the action to the thoughts. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, look, if you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, okay, you have committed adultery with her. So Jesus expands sin from the Pharisaical view of, of just actions he even goes to the thoughts and the imagination and the motivations. And so sin is bigger than just the exterior action. All right? But Jesus does not subscribe to this view of the soul and body dichotomy. All right? Now, that was just the introduction. Okay? And uh, that's just to give you some background. Now, let's go to the Bible and see from Scripture in our series, Examining the Science of Overcoming Sin. And I want to look at this unique relationship between human effort and divine power in our cooperation with God in this process of victory over sin. And so we know from Scripture that sin is not something that we are. Sin is a choice, whether it's the thought of, uh, choice of thought, choice of motivation, choice of action, but it's something that we determine. Now, I want to back up here. When we talk about this concept between man's part and God's part, I want to read from 
Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Let's actually back up to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here comes the next phrase that gives many people heartburn and some people an aneurysm. I mean, you could just feel it. I'm warning you. I'm warning you right now, okay? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, how do you feel when I've read that? Huh? We live in an age where there's a huge reaction to legalism, especially for the baby boomer generation, reacting to legalism. And so when you read those, that phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, verse 13 is the one that everyone loves to quote, right? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, to be very clear here from the beginning, Paul is not saying that we're saved by our works. The Bible is very clear that there is nothing we can do to inherit our salvation. We're not saved by works. We can't contribute to salvation meritoriously. But how can we be faithful to the text, okay, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, verse 13 very clearly indicates that God not only works for us, he works in us. He works from the inside to give us new desires and new heart, a new motivation from the inside out. But the first part of that verse or this passage is very troubling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think I have a slide here uh, talking about this tension between God's part and man's part. Now, I want to compare and contrast several theological structures here from the beginning and uh, show you how theologians have grappled with this for hundreds of years, okay? God's part and man's part. What is the relationship between the two, and what is our emphasis? Let's take predestination and Calvinism, otherwise known as the Reformed theological structure. Now, Calvinism, in the relationship between God's part and man's part, where is the emphasis of Calvinism? It's God's part. It's emphasizing the sovereignty of God. In other words, it's not just an emphasis. It's an emphasis on God's part to the total exclusion of man's part. God arbitrarily chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. We have nothing to do in the matter. We have no say in the matter. The sovereignty of God, the divine will of God, according to Calvinistic theology and according to Luther's own bondage of the will, he's, he acts, he decides, you're saved. I mean, I won't, I won't demonstrate here, but let's say God says, you know, my wife is saved, David Shin, you're not saved. And I'm like, I want to appeal that. Sorry. That's the sovereign will of God, totally outside of human choice. And so the elect are saved, and God chooses in the end, outside of human free will, there is no free will. God has made the decision, ultimately. And so this is one way, according to Calvinistic theology, of reacting to Catholicism and legalism. 
So this was a way of reacting. They said, you know, man makes no contribution. Matter of fact, God makes all of the decision. It is all based in God. And so if you're a part of the elect, how much assurance do you have? 100%. Matter of fact, there's nothing you can do to be lost. God's made the decision. Now, I've never met a person in Reformed theology that believes that they're not part of the elect. And my question is, how do you know that? I mean, isn't that fascinating? And so this is Calvinistic theology. Now, on the other side of this, okay, is another theological structure known as Catholicism. And uh, in my master's degree, I did a master's in historical theology. Uh, I did a paper on Erasmus. Erasmus was doing a rebuttal to Lutheran theology, and Erasmus made a fascinating point. He was a Catholic theologian, and Erasmus said that man's part had little merit. Merit is a theological word, meaning that man's part made some contribution toward the salvation process. In other words, man, in a little way, earned their salvation. And so this is the theological ground of Catholicism, that you make a contribution toward your salvation, and that has merit and earns your salvation. And so the reaction of Protestantism was predestination to legalism. Now, in Adventism, believe it or not, there is a swinging pendulum in our own community of faith as well. All right, I would be naive to stand up here and say, oh, we don't have any of these problems, okay? Now, it's not as extreme as predestination, okay? Now, uh, in some circles, there is an emphasis on man's part, believing that man's part, I'm talking about in our own community of faith, makes some sort of meritorious contribution. Now, in the Catholic framework, it's the seven sacraments have little merit. You do the sacraments, that's meritorious toward earning your salvation, Now, in Adventism, we have, in some circles, our own sacraments. All right? Um, Meritorious veganism. Hmm? Okay? Now, I'm not saying that veganism is wrong, but are you following me? In other words, you're vegan, and that has little merit and contribution toward salvation. All right? Or, Or other things that creep in there, okay? Into our thinking that we're making some sort of contribution and saying, look, I, I got points, God. You've got to save me. I'm making some sort of contribution. Now, I'm going to back up here and tell us where these things come into our play in the Christian experience, but, but they're not meritorious, okay? You can't earn your salvation by anything that you do and say, Lord, here it is. I've done this. This is, this is it's like a, a transaction. I've earned my salvation. That's not how it works. All right. Then there's the other extreme, even in Adventist theological circles, where it emphasizes God's part. To the extreme of saying, don't do anything. Just stand still. All right? And let God do everything for you. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit. Just stand still. Okay, so that's on the other side of that. Now, what is the biblical perspective 
of this tension between God's part and man's part. And I believe that Paul beautifully blends this reality between God's part and man's part. And that's why this verse is so challenging. Let's read it here again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What Paul is doing here is blending God's part and man's part. Now, I want to be very clear. Just because our part does not have any merit doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play. You following me? Uh, Some people are like, hey, if I don't get credit, I don't want to do it. Well, that's not how it works. Now, Now, God gives us the ability. Who gives us the ability to do our part? God does. So even the ability comes from God. So we can't claim any credit. Even your desire to desire comes from God. So God gets all the credit. Now, God places you in a position so that you can act and choose. But then he says, look, the choice is up to you. All right? So we have a responsibility in this cooperation. And when when we talk about God's part and man's part, we're really talking about cooperation with what God intends to do in our lives. And the only illustration that I could think of this cooperative process is agriculture, which was in our children's story, or or the germination of a plant. Jesus used the analogy of agriculture multiple times to describe the Christian experience. Now think about the implications of agriculture, okay? When you take a seed, okay, and you place it into the ground, and that seed germinates and grows, can you take any credit for the creation of that life? Absolutely not. But is there a part that you need to play to unlock that potential? Absolutely. If you get a jar of seeds and you just put them in your shelf, okay, it can last there for decades. And you're not going to get any fruit. All right? So we, need, we have a role to play. We need to take that seed out of that jar, okay? We need to till the soil. We need to plant the seed, okay, to fulfill the conditions for that life to take place. But that life was always there. We're just fulfilling the conditions. We're we're cooperating. Now, who gave you the ability to take that seed and plant it in the ground? God did. God did. And so there is this collaborative, cooperative process that we have in our relationship with God. God did not say that the Word of God is like a, a nuclear bomb. In his analogy, of course, they didn't have nuclear bombs back there, back then, but he didn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a hydrogen bomb, okay? He said the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. In other words, the potential is there. God has given you the ability to fulfill the conditions, but he leaves the ball in your court as to whether you're going to unlock that potential. It takes cooperation, and that's what I believe that Philippians chapter 2 is alluding to. Now, some people may ask, uh, uh, what, 
What is man's part? Does that mean that I need to get up every day and just pull myself up by my bootstraps and say, oh, today I'm just going to, human effort and divine power, I'm just going to grit through this. Well, when, when we look at the sanctuary, we see the collaborative, cooperative process is implied. So this is where Adam and Eve were. We alluded to this last Sabbath in the, in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Then, then afterwards, because of sin, the entire human race was placed out here. And then the process of salvation is where God brings you in here. Okay, You accept him as your savior. You're baptized at the laver. Then he brings you in here. Now, just for the sake of uh, helping us to understand this, Philippians chapter 2, I believe, is this experience. This experience is where God works for you. He worked for you at the cross, okay? On your behalf, before you were even born, all right? The plan of salvation was instituted and thought up before, before sin. Okay, so see, he worked for us, all right? He works for us through the process of baptism. Here, he works in us. Okay? And the whole process is to bring us here. Now, look how he brings us power in our day-to-day life. It is through these three articles of furniture. Okay? And notice the way that we relate to the symbolism here. First, we have the table of showbread. Okay? Food. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Think about the way that food engages with us. Does God provide for our food? Absolutely. But do we have a part to play to get the benefits of that food? Absolutely. Okay? You got to... I mean, this is a very uh, vulnerable process. There's a lot of trust when you put something in your mouth and you, you know, a lot of faith and you swallow it. Okay, so, so you, you put the food into your mouth Okay, you chew the food, all right? You digest the food. And so this is a part that we have to play, and and the Word of God is available. Here it is. All the power is here, okay? But we need to make the effort, amen? We need to make the time to eat, to, to take advantage of the benefits. That takes effort. That is our responsibility. God is not going to wake us up, or he will wake us up if you ask, but God's not going to come down and pull the sheets off your bed, okay? Open your eyelids and say, here, all right, you better read this because you need this today, all right? Now, God has given us the ability to study the word. He gives us the desire to study the word, but we need to choose to study the word. So that's man's part, all right? Our part is to go where the power is, all right? This is where the power is. We need to engage this daily. This is our responsibility to tap into the power that is readily available to us each and every day. All right, let's go to the next article of furniture, the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of God's people. All right, beautiful thought. The king of the universe clears his calendar for you. Anytime, anywhere, any place, you can talk to him and have the power of omnipotence right there. But God will not force you to pray. That's our part. God will give you the desire. God will give you the capability. Take advantage of that opportunity. Amen? Cry out to him and say, Lord, 
I don't even know what to say, but I need you. Amen? He's like, all right, all right, let's do this. But, but that's our part. That's our responsibility. That is something that God has placed in our courts. He's like, I'm here. You call me anytime. Okay? He gives you a special satellite phone. Okay? High tech. All right? Uh, you, you, know, you know, it doesn't require any space. You just say it in your mind or vocalize it. And he's like, I'm listening. I'm here. Talk to me. So Bible study requires a cooperation with God. Prayer requires a cooperation with God. And then we come to the last article of furniture right here. And that's the candlesticks. The high priest, the priest would come in every day with a jar of oil. And he would fill the lamps with oil daily. That lampstand represents us. You know, we leak oil. We need to be filled daily. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, ask, 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 ask. Six, six times, ask for the Holy Spirit. In the Greek it says, keep on asking. So keep on asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of John says, the Holy Spirit brings with him the presence of Jesus. Now do you want Jesus in your heart every day? Amen. The Holy Spirit brings him with him the, Holy, uh, the presence of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit in your day-to-day life. But God says, look, I'm going to put the ball in your court. It's your part to ask. I'm going to give you the ability to ask. I'm going to give you the desire to ask. But look, I want you to ask. And so in these three articles of furniture, we have what our part is. This is not like legalism where I'm going to just get up and, and pull myself up by my bootstraps and say, look, I'm going to be loving today or, you know, just, just grit it out. No, you, you, you imbibe the word of God. You do your part. You pray to God for help. You get power from God. You ask for the Holy Spirit. And then the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes out as a natural result of being filled. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. And last but not least, we all need self-control. Amen? And so the works is not, oh, I'm going to be self-controlled today. The cooperative effort is, Lord, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit today to be filled. Work in me both to will and to do of your good pleasure. There's another important part that we need to play, and that is the power of choice. This is foundational. Every day I get up in the morning, I kneel down and say, Lord, I'm yours today. I give you my will. That's a part that we play. God has given us free will, but he wants us to use it to make that choice. And here it is, Steps to Christ, page 47. As we close, many are inquiring, how am I to surrender myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, controlled by the habits of your life. How many of you felt like that before? Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given 
to man. So who has given you even your ability to choose? God. You can't claim any credit. You can't say, I chose God, I get merit, I get credit. God has given you the power of choice. You can't claim any credit for it, okay? But it's yours. God has given it to you, the power of choice. God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of, give of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. Thus your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. This precedes Bible study. This precedes asking for the Holy Spirit. This precedes, you know, this, I shouldn't say precedes prayer. It is prayer. Foundationally, the first prayer that you should pray is, Lord, today I give you my will. Most powerful thing that you can do every day. God's like, okay, we have cooperation here. We can work miracles. That habit in your life that's destroying you, that addiction, that secret sin, God says, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you power today to live a victorious life. How many of you want that today? How many of you want to say, Lord, I give you my will. Help me to be willing to be made willing. Father in heaven, we, you see these hands. It's a symbol of a spiritual decision. May you work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We're not talking about working our way to heaven. We're not talking about earning our salvation. We're talking about cooperating with you with the divine power that you have given us, Lord. Help us to cooperate. You don't force your way into our lives. Help us to be willing to be made willing. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.